This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's special guest is Senior Counsel at Tafapolsky and Smith, and author of A-List Focus on EB2 and EB3 Degree Equivalency, Ron Wada. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Ian. I, I was a little surprised to get your uh, invitation. It's been a while since uh, uh, the issue of EB2 and EB3 degree equivalency has been in the forefront. I think most of the issues have been pretty much resolved, finally. Um, but it's still a pleasure for me to talk about it. <laughs> right. And I think to have you on to talk about that journey to get to this point, that's one of the biggest reasons why we have you on, because it wasn't always like this. So it was great to hear about that journey and that pathway. And of course, our managing director here at EIG, Justin Parsons. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Well, Ron, you wrote quite literally the Bible on EB2 and EB3 requirements. I'm just going to say this right now <laughs> for immigration attorneys nationwide. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, tell us a bit about your background, uh, first becoming an attorney, and eventually getting to the point where you write a reference book uh, that has become standard uh, in the industry today. Okay, I'll try and be concise about that. Um, let's see. Um, I came to law and immigration law in particular kind of uh, late in my career. Um, I originally studied uh, the sciences. I was a physics major in college. I worked uh, as an engineer for 10 years uh, and then uh, a few years as a, as a mechanic. And then I decided to go to law school. I did but my two years worth of basic training in law after law school in Colorado, and then moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and ended up, uh, I did a, a short stint at a, um, a removal defense firm. So I learned about litigation in that sense. Uh, when I joined, they had just gotten started on um, uh, EB2 class action. At that point, the, uh, there was, the California Service Center was denying a lot of the EB2 filings, I-140 filings, uh, denying cases where the uh, beneficiary had a bachelor's and five years worth of experience uh, on pretty specious grounds. And so as the denials kept piling up, they finally decided to challenge uh, in the form of a class action. Uh, and they teamed up with uh, the ACE litigation firm, um, Mark Vanderhout. And uh, that was a, a wonderful experience. I got drafted into it because I was fairly new at the firm and it didn't have a, a, a heavy PERM caseload or it wasn't PERM in those days, it was labor certification. Um, and so they said, okay, well, you know, Ron doesn't have his caseload yet, so let's put him on this class action. <laughs> so that's how it started. I, uh, I became the class administrator for the class action. We ended up with over 400 class members and I had to vet each one of them, you know, to make sure that they met the definition of the class and so forth. And then when the, when the litigation was concluded, I was in charge of uh, working with the USCIS counterpart a single person who was in charge of tracking down all of those denials and turning them around. So 400 plus denials, each individual one had to be tracked down. 
And it was toward the end of that phase, that, that mop-up of these final few cases, they started challenging whether the degrees were equivalent. They had dug up an old uh, AAO decision, I believe it was a 1988 decision, Matter of Shaw, which I referenced in the first book. Uh, and in Matter of Shaw, the AAO, just in an offhand way, said, hey, you know, these three-year degrees from India, they're not equivalent to U.S. degrees because they're three years and U.S. degrees take four years. And so every case that had a beneficiary with a three-year degree, they started taking a really close look at. The problem all along in, in this issue is that they have never issued a policy memorandum, anything that explains their reasoning to the immigration bar, to the public at large, what they were doing and why. Instead, we had to learn about it through unpublished denials. And so the immigration bar is, well, I mean, we have AILA. AILA is an organization that helps to connect people. And so we can learn about these denials when people complain. Well, we only see about less than 10% of the people actually communicate what happened in their cases. And so it took a long time for this pattern to emerge, okay, become, become apparent to attorneys in a general sense. And in the meantime, everybody's got their own sort of theories about, well, what went wrong, what you need to do to fix it. Attorneys operating in real time, of course, they're coming up with their workarounds. And what set me to writing um, my book was I had published a, an article at a, a national conference, right, AILA conference, that kind of laid out what I had learned. And uh, after that, I was on a conference call with a bunch of very, very seasoned attorneys talking about this issue and the, the kind of explanations that they were throwing out there and workarounds that they were suggesting, I thought to myself, this is all wrong. Everybody's wrong. <laughs> and so I said, what do I have to do? I've already published this article, but obviously no one had read it. So I said, okay, I need to publish a book. I need to write a book and publish it a book that contains or includes all of my sources of authority, why I come to where I am. Uh, and uh, I pitched it to Ayla and Ayla agreed. They said, okay. Um, and so I wrote it. I wrote it uh, in the summer of uh, 2007. And that was a very long process because uh, the, the USCIS was creating the rules on the fly. Um, they had no guidance to go by, the, yet they had all these petitions with different people with different kinds of backgrounds and they're trying to figure out how to deal with it. And so they're creating rules, uh, all originating from this non-equivalency of the three-year bachelor's degree from India. 
And at the time that was happening, I could foresee that this is going to bleed over to three-year degrees from other countries. It's going to uh, bleed over to um, uh, master's degrees that aren't you know, maybe the same as a US master's degree. There are all kinds of possibilities. And sure enough, that's what happened. It just took a very long time. It was like a um, watching a crash in slow motion. And it came down to this one liaison meeting in Nebraska where I, I, uh, I said, okay, I'm gonna ask some direct questions here at this meeting and see if I can get them to really say out loud what their policies were. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, USCIS is very, very reluctant to say things out loud, to articulate their positions because you know, the bad things can happen to them, right? They say one thing and then it turns out to be um, disputed by someone else in the agency or they don't like to stick their necks out. And so they're very reluctant to say definitive things about what their policies are if they can avoid it. So I thought, okay, at this meeting, I'm going to pose direct questions about degree equivalency. And uh, uh, on the committee with me was uh, Rob Cohen. Rob Cohen at AILA um, was very, very good at liaison work. Uh, very politic, very, very good lawyer. And I showed Rob, I said, look, I wanna ask these questions. And Rob says to me, no, no way. They're not gonna answer these questions. <laughs> I said, well, well you know, I'm going to take it, give a shot. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to ask. Okay. Well, can't hurt to ask. And uh, we also had the good fortune of there being a new director of Nebraska Service Center, uh, a guy named Jerry Heinauer, who had transferred from uh, USCIS in Rome. And who knows how these things happen. But I saw Jerry as a, being a real straight shooter. In other words, he, his policy was, it's okay to be tough. It's okay to be hard-nosed uh, in adjudicating these positions. But he didn't want people hiding the ball. He didn't like that, okay? And so I started asking these questions and I could see Chris Crandall sort of uh, uneasy in her chair and trying to figure out how to how to answer and and I glanced over at Jerry and Jerry is like boring holes into her with his eyes okay <laughs> and so so she finally uh, started answering the questions like I the first question was uh, well do you accept a U.S. master's degree as satisfying a, a master's degree requirement the real softball question, the real obvious answer. And uh, she finally said, yes. And once she started to answer, it, it just tumbled out of her as, as each more difficult question came up. Uh, once we had that ball rolling, we, we could establish on the record what the positions were in, in very basic terms, in very, um, specific to degree situations, the kinds of problems that we were encountering. Um, 
And so that was the, the breakthrough moment. And, um, and I credit Chris Crandall in my, my first book for being very consistent, very precise, and sticking to it. One of the right. big problems was, well, even if they say something one day, the next day, it could change because um, none of these things is written down. They're not committed to anything. Uh, but, but Chris was actually very, very good about that. And I right. really appreciated her. For it. Yeah, it's a great story. So I've been practicing for 16 years and um, I, and, and I don't think I've emailed you in, in probably five or six years, but I would say that, um, you know, we have emailed you over the years and you've always gotten back to us very quickly, which has been pretty amazing um, on these, you know, kind of nuanced, weird, um, you know, EB2 or EB3 issues. But the one thing I would have to say is, you know, um, and as Ian kind of brought it up, so we, you know, internally, I think when you hand somebody who's starting immigration, business immigration law, you give them probably two books, you give them probably a Kurzban, which is $1,000 these days, and then you give them your book, at least <laughs> in our office, we do. Um, you know, and, and I understand that, you know, maybe this, this area of law has been settled, but I guess, like, how, how does it feel to have written one of the most seminal kind of books in immigration law that has guided, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, approved petitions for individuals? How does that, how does that kind of resonate with you, kind of in, in retrospect? I'm, I'm shocked and, and delighted at the same time. Yeah. Um, shocked that the issue has persisted the way it has shocked that the uh, immigration service has to this day not issued a guidance document on this that explains their position and why they why they decide things the way they do uh, even the the current regime of where they're using the acrow edge database as their go-to source for degree equivalency they have never once said this is our source <laughs> it only shows up in unpublished decisions where they they say well you said this your evaluator said that well here's what the edge database says and we're going with that okay um, and that's that's the only place it shows up and of course in these um, unpublished decisions no one's committed right and they're not binding on any future decisions uh, they apply to that case alone. Well, you see, you know, 10, 20, 30 cases with the same language in it, you kind of get the idea that they're relying on the edge database. And so, but even that, they won't issue a memorandum saying, this is what we're doing and why, okay? The edge database, however, was a godsend for us because it finally put the adjudication of um, uh, PERM applications, uh, EB2 and EB3 applications on a, a more or less standard footing, in a footing where an individual attorney could actually gain access to the database, look at what, what's in there, look at what the database says about your guy's degree, and then you know what the government's position is going to be, and then you can design your perm application. Okay, so <laughs> it just, it, 
it's still shocking to me that the, this issue persists mainly because the government just simply refuses, declines to explain itself. Right, yeah. and that's, yeah. I, I was gonna ask you what you thought the reasons were uh, for that. I mean, what you've done, you know, the frustrations I think is just always, there's a, a moving target with the requirements and you mm -hmm. never know for sure that there's, okay, this, this standard requirements that if I hit these benchmarks, then okay, this is guaranteed to go further. So um, when it's a little bit more nebulous and it's a moving target, it just makes it that much more frustrating. And you wrote a book that at least gave a, a framework uh, which practitioners could use and um, hopefully officers <laughs> can also use to make better determinations or, or follow at least a certain standard. Yeah, and that was, that was the, the, the thrust of my effort was to try and, okay, figure out what are the rules? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys tell me, you know, let me know. <laughs> and there were all, they came from all different sources, different directions. I would analyze these unpublished AAO decisions and figure out well, how did they come to this? What are they? What was their thinking here? And uh, did and you so get an I finally, answer to that? Or well, well I, I narrowed it down at least uh, to in the first book uh, to these seven uh, essential concepts. Okay. And some of them are because of what the government's doing, but a lot of them were because of what immigration attorneys were doing. Immigration attorneys were, uh, are notorious for devising simplistic rules of thumb. Oh, the single source degree rule, for example, that's a classic, okay? That spread like wildfire uh, throughout the immigration bar because it was easy to understand. Single source degree, oh, okay, a single place. But it actually has a very specific meaning, but we, we, we don't carry that specific meaning with us, okay? Single source degree meant that you couldn't combine degrees. You couldn't combine a three-year Indian bachelor's degree with a one-year postgraduate diploma to come up with your bachelor's degree. That's what single source degree rule refers to. Well, then people get confused because, well, what about a person goes to community college and then they, they go to a four-year school and they get their degree. That's not a single source degree. They went to two different schools to get it, but actually it is because the bachelor's degree is a single source degree. Okay, and they got credits for their community college work when they entered. The similar thing can happen in India, okay? And so, so when you use a phrase like single source degree, well, what happens when you get a master's degree? Is, it, is that master's degree a single source degree? I mean, you had to get a bachelor's degree before you got your, bachelor's, your master's degree. So you start to get confused. What is a single source degree? And if all you remember is that phrase, single source degree, you get led off in the wrong direction. Yeah, I would, I would say that um, the, the reference points are, you know, that we still go through whenever we, we're dealing with a complex degree is 
you know, we'll look at acro and then we'll look at, at your book, Ron, still. Um, it's a, it's a little tatter, tattered these days in our office, but um, like I blame Ayla for that. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, I'm curious to hear about like, um, in terms of your current practice, um, do you still do perms? Do you, what does your practice look like these days? Do you ever, um, do you ever, do you ever uh, reference your own book? I guess. Is one of my, one of my um, I reference my own book when I'm fielding questions from other attorneys. Okay. That is the uh, best resource, so you know, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My own work. They'll ask me a question. I say, oh, well, look at page such and such. <laughs> but of course, I don't reference the book when dealing with the government. Um, but I haven't, I don't have a, an active caseload of my own anymore. Um, and so I keep up, though, by um, fielding questions from other, I see what problems everyone else runs into. And I can usually figure out what it is. Now, another problem that I encounter with immigration attorneys is that they're very bad about explaining their own cases. Uh, they're ve very, as a group, very imprecise about, well, you know, I did this and they said that. And I say, oh, wait a second let me see your uh, ETA 9089. <laughs> That's when I'll know what it is you said. <laughs> so I want to see the 9089 section H and I want to see the decision. And from those two documents, I can piece together what happened. There you go, Ron. Straighten uh, up these attorneys. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we, we need it, you know, they need to straighten up. And that's, the same thing happens, uh, that continues to happen today with PERM applications. Uh, attorneys still come to me and they say, oh, well, I have this, this situation with my, my PERM and um, I got this, uh, uh, either, it's a, either it's an audit or it's a, um, a denial on the perm or, or it's a um, RFE on the subsequent I-140. And then I need to piece together this history and then I can uh, answer the question. I can tell them what happened. Well, I can, I can usually spot when there's a training issue at the service center. And this happens now too, because service center personnel turnover, the new people have to be trained on how to, how to deal with these issues themselves. And that training isn't always great. They don't have the book. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they do and they don't say they do. I don't know. Having, you know, written one of the more seminal books and, and having practiced, you know, for, for, you know, the last 15, 20 years, um, I'm kind of curious to know what your take is on the current you know, state of business immigration adjudications and having gone through the past four years where things have dramatically changed. What are your, what are your general thoughts on what the fact, what the past four years were just in general for business immigration and uh, kind of where you think, well, it, where okay. you think it's going to go? <laughs> well, what I've, what I've learned uh, till now is that business immigration issues are pretty cyclical. In other words, you'll go through 
a period of months or years where things are really tough in the immigration agency. Uh, there's a lot of room for discretion in everything that happens. You know, they can tighten down uh, when they feel like it and they can loosen up. And what, what we do as attorneys is uh, when things are loose, uh, it's, it, it's like, oh, wow, it's gravy train, okay? And you can simplify, you can streamline, you can uh, put everything in templates, and uh, and run thousands of cases through, and, and uh, you know make make a, a decent living here. But then something happens, and they start screwing screwing down, tightening up, um, uh, tweaking how they do things, and it suddenly the the gravy train is interrupted. The conveyor belt has to stop um, until you figure out how to deal with this new new wrinkle. And it's real cyclical. Uh, so yeah, things were tough over the last four years because you had, and there is a definite personality among the uh, USCIS adjudicators. There are a range of people, just like there's a range of uh, attorneys and there's a range of clients. Well, there's a range of adjudicators too. And I met my share when I was on the Nebraska Service Center com Committee there are good guys and there are guys that, um, that whose attitude is no to everything. Okay, and sometimes those got, that attitude takes over. And, but they coexist. It's not like they, they disappear when there's the good times, so to speak. Um, they're still there. There are, um, uh, one of the consistent issues, for example, with EB1, uh, adjudications, extraordinary ability, and outstanding researchers. There are there are certain known adjudicators at Nebraska, right? Who will just issue the kitchen sink RFE and they will deny no matter how good your evidence is. These two two factions, you know, you know rise and fall and fade and come back in prominence, you know, and it's cyclical over a period of years like this. Yeah. I was saying yeah. that that's important to keep in mind, the fluctuations and, you know, everything's temporary, mm -hmm. you know, it, it comes and goes and kind of, you have to work with the ebbs and flows <laughs> on a policy level, yeah. you know. Yeah, and you just have to be ready to um, shift your practice when you see these, these trends happening. Uh, not rely on the same formulas that you have been using with success. Uh, you, when you see the trend, you're gonna say, okay, I have to, I have to tweak my process here. Um, and the tr we become uh, dependent on our systems, our templates, you know, hey, what's wrong with this template? It's worked for years. How come it's not working now? <laughs> <laughs> and because the template was good for the good times and uh, needs to be changed a little bit to account for the latest stuff. Okay, well, yeah. no, that's, that, that's beautiful, uh, Ron. I just thank you for coming on. Uh, we got some immigration history here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's like uh, for all the practitioners that's out there, you know, 
Ron raised you, you know, <laughs> he, he, showed, he showed you the way. And I know you got a bunch of sticky notes and highlighter marks all over the book to, to help you through it. And, and this guy definitely paved that way and at least give a, a certain standard, as, as much clarity as you can uh, within an industry that, as you were saying, has its ebbs and flows. So we, we appreciate that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to articulate the underlying principles because the individual little little rules and little practices that we develop are temporary. And when things start to shift again, you got to go back to the, the principles to figure out what to do. No, I think that's it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time to speak with us, Ron. Um, it's probably been a long time we should, we should have you on before. Um, we have a lot of kind of interesting folks on and uh, Ian does a really great job kind of curating the program and and uh, yeah, so th I just say say thanks for your time today. Thank you to lead researcher Con Branch, assistant producers Luke Bianco and David White, and music by Brandon Williams. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.